This is Africa News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to Africa News Tonight from the English to Africa service of The Voice of America, your source for Pan-African news and world developments. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Coming up on Africa News Tonight... Three million people across the 19 countries in the region already expected to face emergency and crisis levels of food insecurity between June and August, the period we call the lean season period. That was Jaun Sidi Majingar with the World Food Program talking about how floods are adding to food shortages in West Africa. Details coming up also. The UN is discussing the conflict in Ethiopia at a private meeting. A UN official calls for Chad's security forces to stop using deadly forces after dozens of protesters were killed yesterday. And a U.S. diplomat stresses the need for progress towards unifying Libya's military. We'll have these stories and more on African News tonight. We start with our top story. The UN chief human rights official Volker Turk is calling for an end to the use of lethal force by Chadian security forces who reportedly killed and wounded dozens of protesters yesterday. Lisa Schlatt reports from Geneva. Violent demonstrations broke out in several cities Thursday, protesting the decision by Chad's military government to delay by two years the handover of power to civilian rule. Chadian authorities report some 50 people have been killed and nearly 300 injured in clashes between security forces and protesters. The High Commissioner spokeswoman Ravina Shamdasani says a journalist reportedly is among those killed. Additionally, she says her office has received reports that at least 500 people have been arrested. The UN Human Rights Chad office received information from several sources that early in the morning of the 20th of October, several hundred protesters, mostly young people, started demonstrating in Jamena and that internal security forces used tear gas and fired live ammunition to disperse the protesters. Mohammed Idris Deby, the son of Chad's former president Idris Deby, took power after his father was killed a year and a half ago during an operation against rebels. The younger Deby's transition rule was supposed to have ended Thursday. His refusal to step down and restore civilian rule triggered the current protests. Shandasani says the High Commissioner is calling for calm and for all sides to show restraint. In particular, she says, defense and security forces must refrain from using force against peaceful protesters. She adds that all those detained for exercising their rights to peaceful assembly must be promptly released. Today, I understand uh, from colleagues that the situation is calm but tense. And this also has to do with the fact that the government um, announced a suspension of the activities of the political parties that called for the protests. Yes, we are in touch with the government. We have an office in Chad, um, and uh, we have been raising our, our concerns with them regularly. She says the Human Rights Office is monitoring the situation and will continue to do so. At the same time, she says the High Commissioner is calling on Chadian state institutions to conduct impartial, prompt, and effective investigations into alleged human rights violations. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. 
The World Food Program says devastating floods across West and Central Africa have affected 5 million people in 19 countries, claiming hundreds of lives, upending livelihoods, displacing tens of thousands from their homes, and decimating over a million hectares of cropland. The UN agency adds that this disaster in a region already in the grip of an unprecedented hunger crisis is one of the deadliest in the area in years and is likely to deepen food shortages for millions. For more on the situation, VOA's Douglas Mpuga spoke with Jaun Sidi Majingar, WFP's regional head of communications for West Africa. The above average rainfall and devastating flooding across West and Central Africa has affected about 5 million people in 19 countries across West Africa region. So you're talking about impact. So the impact is on people. We have several people who were killed due to the flooding. We have a lot of cropland destroyed until early this week. We have over 500 people that were killed, but the number kept increasing every day. So the latest update from today, I don't have it, but it's we could have we we might have more many more than than the 500 people killed and we have over 800,000 people who were forced to leave their homes in various countries in uh, uh, in Nigeria in Chad and in many of the of the countries affected by the flooding and then over 1 million crop lands that were destroyed by the same flooding that is affecting the region. The impact when croplands are affected, it means agricultural activities, farming activities are affected, and, and this is going to, to, to increase, to, to, to worsen the, the food security situation in the region. For your information, we have already, the region is currently uh, facing one of the worst food security situations with 43 million people across the 19 countries in the region already expected to face emergency and crisis levels of food insecurity between June and August, the period we call the lean season period, when food stocks from the previous harvest are low and the, the, new, the new crop is yet to be ready for families to rely on. So what is happening right now is just going to worsen the situation that we already know and we already there are the people are already experiencing throughout the the region here. What would you attribute this uh, what would appear to be like a double punch of flooding and then hunger in the region? The flood is going to worsen the hunger situation because we we have so many factors that are contributing to the increasing number of of hungry people. First of all, before those flooding, then we have insecurity that is pushing people, forcing people to leave their villages across the, the, the Sahel region in countries like Mali, Burkina Faso, Niger, and Chad. We have people who were forced, to, including Nigeria as well, people who were already forced to leave their homes, their villages, their, their farming lands because of insecurity. to find refuge in safer areas. So this already, when people are displaced, then they have no access to their farming land, so they cannot grow. And they, when they don't grow, then they have no food. And then we have also drought last year that affected also some areas across the region here. 
And again, we have the, the global conflict that is taking place. For instance, the conflict happening in, uh, in Ukraine that has a global impact on the food prices and on also the supply chain, everything. And prior to all this crisis, then we have COVID situation, COVID uh, pandemic that has also destroyed livelihood, uh, destroyed uh, jobs and everything. So all these combined uh, factors push people, more and more people, into food insecurity. So this is the situation we have, and we see that with the flooding that's affecting countries across the region, the food security situation may worsen again uh, compared to what we know now. That was Jaun Sidi Majingar, Regional Head of Communications for West Africa at the World Food Programme, speaking from Lome, Togo, with VOA's Douglas Mpuga. The African Union's Peace and Security Council is meeting today to discuss the escalating war in Ethiopia's northern Tigray region. Fred Harter reports from Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. The conflict resolution body is to receive a briefing from AU Special Envoy Odasugo Nobusanjo, who is leading efforts to mediate between the Tigray rebels and Ethiopia's federal government. The United Nations Security Council was also set Friday to discuss the conflict in Ethiopia at a private meeting requested by Gabon, Ghana and Kenya this week. Both meetings are being held a day after Ethiopia announced it was on representatives to AU-sponsored peace talks on October 24. Leaders of the rebel Tigray People's Liberation Front have not confirmed their attendance at the talks to take place in South Africa. AU-mediated talks were slated to begin earlier this month but were postponed for logistical reasons. In recent days, diplomats have stepped up their calls for a ceasefire in Tigray. Ethiopia said last week it plans to seize Tigray's airports and other strategic facilities. On Monday, it announced the capture of three towns in Tigray. U.S. State Department spokesperson Ned Price said Thursday that the U.N. and AU meetings demonstrates the international community's great concern about the situation. He also renewed the U.S. call for the withdrawal of Eritrean troops from Tigray, where they are supporting the Ethiopian government's offensive. The AU's Peace and Security Council last discussed Ethiopia August 4, roughly three weeks before a five-month ceasefire in Tigray ended. Since then, the situation in the conflict has dramatically changed for the worse, said the Amani Africa think tank in a briefing note Friday. Fred Harter for VOA News, Alice Arba, Ethiopia. The Tigray rebels issued a statement today confirming they will participate in the peace talks Monday. The government already agreed to be there. And the U.S. Department of Homeland Security said the U.S. government is granting 18-month temporary protected status for Ethiopians already residing in the United States. Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas cited conflict-related violence and a humanitarian crisis involving severe food shortages, flooding, drought, and displacement that could prevent Ethiopians from safely returning to their home country. You're listening to African News Tonight on The Voice of America. I'm Yehayas Wuhib in Washington. The charge d'affaires of the U.S. Embassy in Libya, Leslie Ordman, has stressed the need for progress towards unifying the country's military institution under a democratically elected civilian leadership. 
Ordman says these steps are essential to avoid conflict and advance the political transition process in Libya. Meanwhile, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres stresses he is striving to avoid the worst-case scenario in Libya. Wolfgang Porstai, former Austrian military attaché in Libya, discussed with VOA senior analyst Mohamed El-Shenawi how realistic it is to unify the Libyan armed forces. I would say that's a noble and very positive idea, but unfortunately entirely unrealistic, other than maybe a formal common commander-in-chief for the two sides. Let me explain. There is a bitter hatred between the two sides. No surprise after years of cruel fighting and several war crimes. I don't know any example of a civil war where the belligerent parties unified to a real common army just two years after a ceasefire and in the midst of rising tensions. One must also not forget that the Tripoli-based Libyan army chief of staff Haddad is not the one calling the shots in Western Libya. His influence on the powerful militias who are really in charge in the West, including on those on his hometown, Misrata, is very, very limited. The Libyan army of Al-Haddad just consists of a ministry of defense, a general staff, lots of headquarters, and only very few troops. Altogether, not a very powerful force. The real force, as said in the West, are the numerous militias who don't follow his orders, although most of them are on the pay lists of the ministry of defense or on the Ministry of Interior. United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres has stressed that he is striving to avoid the worst case scenario in Libya, calling on all political parties to agree on holding elections. He emphasized the need to quickly reach an agreement between the House of Representatives and the High Council of the State to allow for legal changes to take place which are necessary to conduct the elections in Libya. How serious is the situation in Libya to cause the United Nations Security General to fear a worst-case scenario. The situation is extremely serious. Prime Minister Dabeba acts somehow as the head of a Tripoli-Misrata district administration, but not like a prime minister of a whole country. The living conditions are worsening, especially in the east and in the south, but also in several parts of Tripolitania. The oil and gas memorandum of understanding with Turkey led to some more dissatisfaction with Dabeba. Some claim, and I would say probably they are right, that Dabeba is selling out Libya's oil wealth while enriching his own clan and ensuring protection for his own political survival. And there is an important development coming up. There is a plan for a major conference in Benghazi in the next days at the conference center of the Ministry of Economics there. The various political eastern groups, tribes, NGOs, and activists will discuss and they also want to re-implement the 1951 Federalist Constitution. Of course, the practical impact of such a decision needs to be seen. However, based on this, they plan to establish a federation of Fezzan and Cyrenaica with an own government. Tripolitania should join at a later stage. I would say, I assume, Aguila Saleh and Khalifa Hefta, the LNA commander, have certainly agreed to this conference. United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres said during a press conference on the occasion of the beginning of the head of the United Nations support mission in Libya, Abdullah Bathili, officially taking over, that there is an intention for the German foreign ministry to revive the Berlin conference as it is the most useful international tool to avoid the worst scenario in Libya and reach a possible solution to the crisis. Would that be useful to advance a political solution in Libya? 
to be honest, I don't see any reason why another Berlin conference should have more impact on the ground than the previous ones. Let's remember, Berlin 1, mid-January 2020, chaired by Chancellor Merkel, Erdogan and Putin were among the prominent participants. They all supported the ceasefire. There was none. They agreed to respect the arms embargo and not to send troops or mercenaries, just at the beginning of the open Turkish military intervention. Berlin 2, June 21. They demanded the immediate withdrawal of all foreign forces and mercenaries and welcomed the Babers, he was a participant, commitment to the elections. Paris, November 21. They again demanded elections. We know the outcome. The Europeans and the Americans must realize that the international influence on the main Libyan actors is, with the notable exception of Turkey, extremely limited. And Erdogan doesn't really care about the decisions of the conferences. That was Wolfgang Poshtai, former Austrian military attaché in Libya, speaking with VOA senior analyst Mohamed El-Shinawi. Startups and small and medium-sized enterprises are changing the way Africa does business through innovation and technology. From agriculture, telecommunication, health, and so many sectors, young entrepreneurs are infusing vibrancy and energy into the African economy. Big business is watching and ready to support. Through the 2022 Africa Digital Innovation Competition, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and its prestigious partners are providing cash awards and mentorship support to three of Africa's top innovators chosen from 17,000 candidates from 50 countries in North, Central, East, West and Southern Africa. The Voice of America interviewed the top 10 candidates from where the finalists will be picked. Here is one of them. My name is um, Karim Amir. I'm 29 years old. Uh, I'm co-founder and CTO uh, of a startup called Visual and the Eye Solutions, uh, or VASE as we call it. We believe the Africa Digital Innovation uh, Competition is a great opportunity for our startup uh, to showcase our innovation on, on a world stage um, and also get a constructive uh, feedback from the esteemed judges and mentors uh, we met across the stages of the competition. It was a great news for us to, to be announced as the champion of North Africa and one of the top 10 finalists in the competition. And I think it's another very positive sign for us that we are uh, walking on the right track and we are actually tackling the, the right problem. I think we can all agree how, how big and vital is the agriculture market in Africa. However, farmers are facing huge challenges nowadays, including water scarcity, lack of access to scalable and cheap technology, and on top of that, climate change is making everything worse each and every season. To help farmers cope with these challenges, we are building an innovative technology called the virtual field probing, uh, which is based on um, analyzing petabytes of satellite data uh, using our uniquely designed uh, self-supervised um, uh, AI system. So our technology uh, can have a huge impact uh, on, on farmers' lives. We are helping farmers reducing their costs using our uh, optimal irrigation scheduling and fertilization plans and all those, uh, also services like early stress detection and prevention. In addition, we are also uh, helping them mitigate the risks of uh, climate change and reducing also the, the carbon and methane emissions. First thing I will do when I win the competition, I think, is uh, informing our team and colleagues. And we are really proud of them, and hopefully we can uh, celebrate together uh, winning the competition. 
That was Karim Amar from Egypt. His company, Viz, uses data and analytics to help farmers address water scarcity and climate change. It's one of the 10 finalists in the Africa Digital Innovation Competition for African Startups, organized by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce's U.S. Africa Business Center. Next, an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. Nature crimes, criminal forms of logging, mining, wildlife trade, land conversion, and associated criminal activities, as well as crimes associated with fishing, hurt people, and they undermine the conservation and sustainable use of our natural world. Nature crime is big business for international criminal syndicates. It is astonishingly lucrative, bringing in hundreds of billions of dollars per year. It is also enormously destructive, robbing communities of their livelihoods and natural resources, spreading disease, destroying ecosystems, and pushing species to the brink of extinction. And it is linked to trafficking in persons, drugs and guns and corruption, extortion and bribery, money laundering, and fraud. In late September, Norwegian Minister of Climate and Environment Espen Bart Eide and U.S. Assistant Secretary of State for Oceans and International Environmental and Scientific Affairs Monica Medina co-hosted a roundtable attended by ministers and senior officials from 11 countries. The two co-hosts used the event to preview the Nature Crime Alliance, a new collaborative initiative to combat these crimes. These crimes harm ecosystems and local communities, hamper development, and pose significant long-term consequences for future generations, said Minister Ida and Assistant Secretary Medina in a statement released after the roundtable. Although individual nature crimes are already illegal and prosecuted in most countries, these efforts are often fragmented and not enough to take down these criminal networks. The United States and Norway hope the Nature Crime Alliance will serve as a catalyst to raise political will and mobilize financial commitment, to engage civil society, technical experts, and law enforcement, to bolster operational capacity to fight nature crime, and to support the rights and security of indigenous peoples and local communities. These criminal activities threaten national security, undermine the rule of law, rob countries and communities of their natural resource base and revenue, drive species to the brink of extinction, and spread disease. They must be stopped, and the time to act is now, said Assistant Secretary Medina. The joint statement continued, The syndicates who perpetrate these crimes fuel corruption, financial crimes, including tax evasion and money laundering, and sow destruction everywhere they operate. No country, no land, no waters, no people are safe from their illegal, often brutal activities. We look forward to working with those who joined us today as we further develop a new collaborative initiative, the Nature Crime Alliance. That was an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Iheyas Wuhib in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, Mokbilia Baro, and our engineer, Rob McLean, thanks for choosing the Voice of America.
This is Heather Maxwell, host of Music Time in Africa. Join me every Saturday and Sunday for an hour of awesome African music. Wake up, dance this music. Like to stay on top of new music trends? Breakout artists? New releases? Maybe you just love the classic styles and artists of the past. Or simply the sound and feel of a good beat. Whatever your pleasure, you can get it every week right here on Music Time in Africa. So join me on your local FM station Saturdays and Sundays.